Let's pray together. Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and see Jesus through this text in a way that grabs hold of our thoughts and our imaginations and our desires, indeed our whole lives, that we might continue to love you with all that we have. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about satisfaction, and we looked at the words of the great theologian Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction, and I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. Did anyone who was here last week go home and break out the Rolling Stones album and jam it out? What is it about the human race that we can't seem to get satisfaction? Or sometimes we do get it, but we can't keep it. Our satisfaction doesn't last. We are restless as a species. Do you feel that in yourself? Do you notice that in your life? We have these desires, these needs, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And we keep striving after them. We keep going, we keep going to try to satisfy those needs. Our text for last Sunday and this morning is John chapter 4. We were supposed to be, if you're following along the lectionary in John chapter 9, you might think I was preaching on John 9, but there's just too much good stuff in John 4, and so we're still in John 4. In this chapter, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman by a well. They shouldn't have even been talking because she was a woman and he was a man, and because she was a Samaritan and he was a Jewish person. But Jesus is undeterred by all of this religious custom. He wants to engage this woman in a conversation about water. But really, it's a conversation about satisfaction. Jesus offers her the living water, the only kind of water that can truly satisfy, and she's interested. I don't think she really knows what he's talking about. She misunderstands him and thinks he's talking about maybe some hidden well nearby. But but she wants it. She's interested. She's engaged. And she says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But there was a problem that we saw. Something that stood in the way of her drinking deeply. It was her sinful life. It was the fact that she had been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. For her, it was her relationship to men. She'd have five husbands, and the man that she was living with was not her husband. If she wants to drink the satisfying living water that Jesus offers, she must face these false sources of satisfaction that will never satisfy. That's where we left off last week. This morning we're going to pick up her story and see what happens to this woman. But we're also going to continue the conversation about satisfaction. You see, in this text, Jesus will go on to teach on two very, very important topics, worship and mission. In the Christian life, worship and mission are like twin springs of living water. 
They are two places where the living God bids us come to drink and drink deeply. They are two places where the living water of the Holy Spirit, that's what we saw last week, He is the living water, He is the source. These worship and mission, two places where the Holy Spirit is stirred up and poured out. I would suggest that the degree to which we understand and then practice and engage in worship and mission is the degree to which we will experience true satisfaction in the living God in this life. And so let's walk through this story and see what happens to the woman and listen in on the teaching of Jesus on worship and mission. If you have your Bibles, we're in uh, verse 19. Jesus has just confronted this woman about her broken relationships with men, these false sources of satisfaction. Listen to how she responds, beginning in 19. A woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. How else could this perfect stranger know the things about her life? But then she directs the conversation towards worship. You see, Samaritans and Jews, they shared some common history, but they worshipped differently. The center of worship for the Jews was the temple in Jerusalem. This we know. But for the Samaritans... It was Mount Gerizim, which was literally standing in the background of where they were standing by this well. That's why she says, this mountain. She might have been pointing, this mountain here. That's where we think we are supposed to worship. Why does this woman bring up a controversy about worship when Jesus confronts her about sin? Well, many students of the passage assume that she's trying to divert attention away from herself. And confronted on sin, don't want to talk about that. Let's have a conversation about how do we worship God? A, a good religious controversy, why not? It's one of the best ways religion is, right? To distract from a person's heart from what's really going on. You ever have that experience? A friend, a family member, a neighbor. You, you bring up something about faith, about their heart, about their relationship with God. And the response is... Yeah, the church. Yeah, I was at that church, but I didn't like the pastor. And we went to that church, and the children's ministry wasn't great, and, and it's the church. Or, or, yeah, but the church is just full of hypocrites. And so we keep the focus on something external, like our dissatisfaction with the church, and we can't seem to find the right church, or, or some other religious controversy, so that we don't have to deal with what's going on inside. And that may be the reason that leads this woman to change the subject to this worship religious controversy. But regardless of her reason, Jesus meets her there. And I love this about Jesus. Wherever we go, wherever we wander, however we're trying to distract or divert, he says, okay, we can go there. I can reveal myself there just as well as I can reveal myself somewhere else. So sure, let's talk about religious worship if that's what you want to talk about. Beginning in verse 21, Jesus tells this woman something very surprising, something she wasn't expecting to hear, having brought up this controversy about worship. He probably, she probably expected him to say, well, you know, it is, it's Jews, it's down the road, or talk about temple and Mount Gerizim or whatever. But that's not what he says. Instead, he tells her that the very nature of religious worship is changing. 
something profoundly new is taking place. There's going to be a new worship, what he calls worship in spirit and truth. I want to linger here on what he says about worship given its importance for our satisfaction. And I want to look at three things that are new about this new worship. The first is that there is a new access to God. A new access to God. See, there may have been another reason why this woman brought up the location of worship when confronted by her sin. Maybe she wasn't changing the subject. And here I'm following the argument of Leslie Nubian, a scholar and missionary to India. You see, the woman knows she's dealing with a prophet. Because prophets could confront people about sin and, and tell people things that they, they wouldn't have been able to know otherwise. She knows that. She knows she's been confronted by a sin. But now having that sin brought to light, she needs not a prophet but a priest. She needs a temple. She needs a place where sacrifice can be made for her sin. She needs a mercy seat where atonement can be made and forgiveness and cleansing can be had. So, sir, since you are a prophet, tell me where this is. Since you know all about my life, where is the place that I can go to have my sin dealt with? I thought it was Mount Gerizim, this mountain, but, but you Jews, you say it's down the road in Jerusalem in the temple. Which is it? You see, friends, what we have to understand when we read this passage is that worship back then wasn't singing a few songs. Worship was sacrifice. Worship was slaughter. If you wanted to come into the presence of a holy God and have your sins wiped away, something had to die. There must be blood. Well, Jesus says to this woman that an hour is coming when worship is going to change. An hour. What does he mean by that? Well, if we read over the whole of the Gospel of John, that's not an unusual phrase. Over and over, we're told about the hour of something. In particular, it's used for Jesus to talk about his crucifixion, his trial, his death. Earlier in the Gospel of John, he says his hour has not yet come. But then as we get further along and we draw near to the cross, he indicates that the hour has come. For him to be glorified. For him to finish the work of the the Father on the cross. Woman, an hour is coming when worship is going to change. What hour? The hour when Jesus dies on a cross. In that moment, the temple in Jerusalem and every other temple, every other place of sacrifice are rendered useless. Why? Because Jesus had become the sacrifice. He had been slaughtered once and for all. His blood had been poured out so we could be cleansed and forgiven. Now we can come into the presence of a holy God, not skulking, not fearful, not wondering if our little sacrifice of goat or bull or lamb is enough, but boldly come into the presence of God because we know that the sacrifice of the Lamb of God was enough. Friends, we have a new access in worship. Don't take it for granted. That's why we're here. That's why we come to the Father through the cross of His Son. But secondly, we have a new location for worship. This is at the heart of her question. You see, the understanding of a temple was, well, that was where 
the presence of a God or our God would, would dwell. That was his presence on earth. And so if you wanted to meet with God, you wanted to be in his presence, you wanted to do business with him, you go to that physical location, that meeting place. Well, in verse 21, Jesus says that's no longer the case. Neither on this mountain, Gerizim, or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That was probably a bit surprising for her. It would have been really surprising for a Jewish person if they had overheard that. What do you mean the temple isn't the place we're supposed to worship God? Of course it is. Jesus instead says no true worship will now be in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, so we must worship him in spirit and in truth. We're going to talk more about what those words mean, but first what they don't mean. I think we sometimes misapply them. We think Jesus might be saying something like, well, religion is really just a matter of the heart. It's not about a physical location. It's certainly not about church or denomination. It's just about what helps you connect with God, spirit to spirit. That, if you extend it out, really fills out our version of worship today, which is this individualized, emotionalized, privatized, and disembodied, meaning apart from anything physical or material, this disembodied view of worship. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not a postmodern philosopher. Why is the location of worship no longer in Jerusalem? It was in Jerusalem for years, for centuries. That's where God's people went. And before that, sometime, it was, it was the tabernacle. God's people were commanded to come to a physical structure, to a place to offer sacrifice. It, it was the place where God's people worshipped. What happened? Why did it change? We got a new temple. Does anyone know what we celebrated yesterday in the church calendar? Annunciation. The Annunciation. Bert and I were at the same conference where we heard this. I had totally forgotten that it was the Annunciation, and I was reminded. The Annunciation is the moment where the angel Gabriel will come and announce to Mary that that you're going to become pregnant. That's the moment of the Incarnation. Incidentally, it's nine months later from yesterday. It's December 25th. Perhaps the reason that Christians dated Christmas on December 25th That's the moment where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the moment where the new location of God's temple was set up in Jesus. Jesus is now the meeting place between heaven and earth. Jesus is the place for sacrifice of sins. Jesus is the embodiment of God's presence and the full revelation of his glory. See, Jesus didn't abolish location from worship, friends. He redefined it. He is the location of worship of the Father. Not Jerusalem, not Gerizim, ma'am. The man standing right in front of you is the new temple. He is the place where one goes to worship. So we have this new access. We have this new location. And third and finally, we have a new revelation. And here's where we get to these words. What does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? Well, I think it's helpful to reach way back sometimes and, and to read our, our ancient Christian forefathers. They have something to say. Last week we looked at St. Augustine. This week let's take a look at Basil the Great. I like that name, Basil the Great. Uh, Basil helped defend the teaching of the Trinity uh, at the Council of Nicaea. 
We get the Nicene Creed comes out of that. We say every Sunday. Well, Basil looks at our passage and he concludes that to worship in truth is to worship God through Jesus. Because Jesus is the true image of God the Father. And he's not making that up. He's not being novel. He's just summarizing what the Bible says in various places. Like Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Where Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So to worship the Father in truth is to worship the Father through the Son. The true representation of his being. Elsewhere in John, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to worship God in truth is to worship God through Jesus. Are you with me so far? What about worshiping in spirit? Well, Basil interprets this as the Holy Spirit. And he says that the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to Jesus. He writes, it is impossible for you to recognize Christ, the image of the invisible God, unless the Spirit enlightens you. So it's the Spirit that opens our eyes to Jesus, to see how He is the image of God, the exact representation of His being. So we can't worship the Father without Jesus because we wouldn't be worshiping Him in truth. And we can't worship the Father without the Spirit because we'd never see Jesus. So put it all together, what does that leave us with? Full Trinitarian worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anything less is not New Testament worship. They're all involved. Worship in spirit and truth is worship of the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has revealed to this Samaritan woman that worship is changing. We're going to have a new access, a new location, a new revelation. Let me come back to our core question. What does that have to do with satisfaction? Everything. Everything. In Christ, by the Spirit, there is a new way to receive and respond to the love of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, which are the the very source of our satisfaction. In this new worship, it is like the spring has been unclogged and the living water can flow freely. If Augustine was right that our hearts are restless until we find peace in God, then worship is how we find and sustain that peace. It's how we address our restlessness. It's not buying something. It's not eating something. It's not getting more success. It is coming into the presence of the living God and drinking of His living water in worship. Conversation moves on again. She changes the subject again. Verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Why is she saying that? Well, she might have been like, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. So, but Messiah, he'll come and, and he'll work everything out. He'll tell us where we're supposed to worship. She appeals to the Messiah. He's our hope. Great irony, right? In response, Jesus says to her very plainly, I who speak to you am he. 
Jesus didn't always reveal his identity as the Messiah so plainly. It was a very politically charged notion, especially among his people, the Jews. But here with this woman, he reveals it. I am Messiah. This Samaritan woman, he wasn't supposed to be talking to her. This unworthy woman, he reveals, I am Messiah. I am the one you're waiting for. I am the king of God's kingdom. I'm coming to set up his kingdom on earth. I am he. Of all the moments that the disciples could have come back from their grocery shopping, this was the moment they came. They step back into the scene. And they see Jesus talking to a woman and they see it. Whoa, this, what, mm -mm, what's going on? But of course, no one's going to say anything to their Lord. They're not going to question him. Well, this moment, this woman, uh, overwhelmed by emotion, by truth, by the living water, we're told, leaves her water jar... Remember John, remember what he does. He gives us these little details that have a deeper meaning. I think this is one of them. He, she leaves her water jar and runs back into town. Why did, she doesn't need her water jar anymore. She's tasted the living water. She runs back into town and starts telling people about Jesus. And then based on her testimony, people from town start coming out to see him. The disciples, meanwhile, focused on something else. They are urging Jesus to eat. I want you to see the juxtaposition here. We have to go back to last week, the beginning of John 4. In the same way that the woman initially was focused on water from the well, literal water. She, that was her focus. What are you talking about? There's water here. How, do you know another water? The same way, disciples are focused on food. Literal food. They don't yet see that Jesus has a more satisfying water. He has a more satisfying food. Verse 32, he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they have the same quarter response that the woman initially had. What? what, you, what? Could someone have brought him food? Do you know a secret source of water? And so he explains more directly. No, no, no. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the Father's work. Have you ever been so excited about something or so just engaged in something you were working on that you forgot to eat? Or that food was the last thing on your mind? Jesus is so satisfied by watching what is taking place right in front of him that food is the last thing on his mind. He has the work of his father. He has the mission of the gospel. That's what's feeding him. We have to put ourselves into Jesus' shoes. We have to remember his humanity. Yes, he knows his work. He knows his mission. He knows that the good news about him is to spread to the whole world. It's to encompass not just the Jewish people, but every nation. But most of his ministry in his three years was among the Jewish people. Only occasionally does he get to engage with someone outside like this Samaritan woman. And in this case, he's, he's watching the seeds of the gospel now begin to take root outside of his people. And that must have been incredibly thrilling for him. God's plan is beginning to take place. It's beginning to go to the whole world. He's seeing the first fruits of that with this woman. The other thing that would have been exciting was it wasn't a long-term process, right? He didn't have to just throw some seeds and wait for others to water and see what would happen in years of conversations. It's instantaneous. He's seeing the fruit right away. And that's what he's talking about uh, in verses 35 and 36. He says to his disciples, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Right? In normal planting, you, you plant seeds, you wait some months, and then there's a harvest. But then Jesus says, look, I tell you, 
Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. The harvest is instantaneous. No sooner was the seed sowed than it was reaped. He sowed some seeds into this woman's life by the well. Some words of truth. Pronouncement of his Messiahship. She believes on some level. And she goes and shares it. The town comes out to it, to him. And they begin to engage. And what do they say? Stay with us. Abide with us. These Samaritans saying to this Jewish man, abide with us. And so he does. He stays two more days. And, and now the town says it's not just based on her testimony, which we believe, but now we have the word of Jesus ourselves. And they believed. And by the end of the passage, these Samaritan half-breeds that were rejected were looked down on. They are confessing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. How exciting that must have been for Jesus to watch all that happen in just a few days. That is his food, my friends. Being engaged in the mission of his Father. That is what satisfies him in a deeper way than any food they could have offered. But he doesn't keep this mission to himself, does he? He shares it with his disciples. He shares it with us. His Father's work becomes our work. We are to join God in his mission of Sowing seeds of the gospel. We are to join God in the joyful work of reaping the fruit of the harvest. As people are taken over by the kingdom of God and the gospel and belief. And in the same way that he was satisfied, I think we can be satisfied. As we give ourselves to the work of mission, we discover a deeper satisfaction. Why are we so dissatisfied so often? I think it's because our eyes are on our own concerns or the concerns of the world. Where Jesus says to us, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Look around. See the harvest. See the good gospel work everywhere. Stop navel gazing and look out and see and engage in the work that I have for you. Ephesians tells us he is prepared in advance. Good works for us to do. That is our food. So think about your life. Are you experiencing satisfaction in the deeper places, a lasting satisfaction? Do you notice dissatisfaction, restlessness, and and the places that leads you, the dry and empty wells that that sometimes takes us? I believe that the degree to which we understand and engage in worship and mission is the degree to which we will experience satisfaction of God in this life on earth. Worship and mission. And they're tied together, aren't they? They're not two separate things. They really go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Because it's in worship that we catch a fresh vision of who God is. And it overflows. That's how we understand our vision as a church. That we we worship and then it overflows like a spring. We can't help but go out and tell and show the goodness of God and His kingdom. That worship needs to happen not just every week, but every day, every moment. And I, I don't always know how to do personal private worship. 
This week I was out on a walk and, and my, my first inclination was to just go to God with my <coughs> prayers and concerns or intercessions and not a bad thing to do. And I just said, what, what, would it, what would it look like if I just started worshiping God just on my walk, just quietly? I could do it out loud, but I, I was just going to do it quietly. What would that look like? And so I just started to say things. I just started to say, God, you're, you're worthy. You're beautiful. Thank, thank you for your beauty. I started thanking him, and it just started to flow, and it just started to come, and I realized that, that this, this is life. This is what I was made to do. This is worship. So we can do that personally, privately, in little moments, as little, just as throughout our day. But of course, our, our worship is anchored every Sunday by our corporate worship, and we come together with the people of God in the presence of God. There's a lot of parts to our worship service. But one of the most important is right at the end, a couple little lines that we say. It's the sending out. Gene or someone says, go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit or to love and to serve the Lord. And we respond, thanks be to God. Why is that so important? Because the point isn't to stay in here. The point is that we've, we've been met by the living God. We've been nourished by word and sacrament. We've seen his kingdom again. And then we're sent out. Most of the church's life is lived out, scattered, spread, where God's mission is everywhere. And when I say mission, don't limit this to a very narrow understanding of mission. Everything in your life is under that concept of mission. Your work, your family, your relationship, it's all mission. Everything you hear about on the news, government, economy, arts, culture, all mission. Why? Because it's part of the world for whom God is king. And yet they don't recognize him as king yet. And so we go out and we proclaim his kingship. We announce it. We demonstrate it. But if you do that, you will wear down. If you do that, you will get disillusioned along the way. Because we encounter resistance. We encounter sin, our own sin, other people's sin. We encounter all sorts of other kingdoms out there that want nothing to do with the kingdom of God and will not bow the knee. And so we get discouraged and we wear down and we need to come back. Personal worship and corporate worship where we can be strengthened in the presence of God again. Where we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and offer forgiveness to others. Where we can be reminded to love our enemies where we can have word and sacrament feed our souls, where we can get a fresh vision of the kingdom. So friends, this is the rhythm of life for a Christian, a Christian who wants deeper satisfaction. It is worship and mission, worship and mission, worship and mission. It is in that sacred rhythm that God meets us and He sustains us and He satisfies us. Let's pray.